This is Jeremiah 21, verse 8, the way of life. We're going to take a look at the first 10 verses of Jeremiah 21 today, with an emphasis on verses 8 through 10. So please get out your Bibles and turn there. In the meantime, though this has already been discovered or discussed in previous sermons, I wanted to repaint the historical background in which we find ourselves. At this point in the biblical timeline, the nation of Israel has split into two pieces. We have the kingdom of Israel to the north and the kingdom of Judah to the south. Now in 720 BC, Israel to the north was sacked by the Assyrian Empire and its people exiled. Fast forward 110 years, four generations, and the Babylonians conquer Assyria and become the dominant nation in the Middle East. About 10 years later, in 597 BC, the Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem and install 21-year-old Zedekiah as tributary king over the kingdom of Judah. Ten years after that, and against the counsel of Jeremiah and other close advisors, Zedekiah tries to declare independence from Babylon, probably ceasing tribute and entering into an alliance with superpower Egypt. Zedekiah probably thinks he can stick it to Babylon, and his new ally Egypt will come to his aid. However, Egypt basically responds by shrugging its shoulders, leaving Judah to fend for itself. So in the summer of 589 BC, Babylon responds by laying siege to Jerusalem again, and it is here where we find our passage. Jeremiah 21, verses 1 through 10. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when Zedekiah sent to him Pasher the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Masiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds, and will make him withdraw from us. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon, and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls and I will bring them together into the midst of the city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath, and I will strike down the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants, and the people in the city who survived the pestilence, sword, and famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them, or spare them, or have compassion. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you, shall live, and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the ability for your saints to gather and hear your word preached. God, we thank you for the scriptures that guide us both in holiness and in truth. Lord, I pray that you would bless this reading and the preaching of your word without your Holy Spirit at work. 
Father, all of this is worthless. But we thank you that your word will not return to you empty and that you are in our midst, opening our ears to hear what you have to tell us this evening. Please, Lord, open hearts to receive this message that you're bringing to us tonight. Amen. Now, the theme of the message that I'd like to deliver is this. God's way of life always meets your needs, though perhaps not your assumptions. God's way of life always meets your needs, though perhaps not your assumptions. I want to break that down into three main points that all stem from this passage. The first one is man's way and its repercussions. The second is God's way and its results. And the third is the character of a surrendered heart. So man's way and its repercussions, God's way and its results, and the character of a surrendered heart. The first one, man's way and its repercussions. So before we can talk about the good, we have to talk about the bad. Let's spend some time breaking down how Judah screwed up and what we can learn from it. So the first part, uh, the point here is an antithesis actually to my main statement, which is this, despite meeting your assumptions, man's way will never meet your needs. Despite meeting your assumptions, man's way will never meet your needs. Now, there are three things that the nation of Judah did poorly in their response to God that reach a low point in these first verses in chapter 21. Now, the first thing they did wrong was not listening to God. It's easy to find passages in Jeremiah that speak to both what God is doing here and why God is doing it. I started out by going through Jeremiah to see what specific verses speak to this issue. I started with whatever I could find. Uh, then I found so many, I thought I'd pick one per chapter. Then I realized 20 verses in and of itself is a lot. So let me sum up with just five from the first five chapters uh, of the book. So the first one is from Jeremiah chapter one, verse 16. And it reads, and I will declare my judgments against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. Jeremiah chapter 2, the entire chapter really, uh, is one long condemnation uh, of the nation of Judah. But I thought I would highlight verses uh, 8 and 9 here, where it reads, Did the priest not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law do not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 10, says, Yet for all this, Israel's treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 18 reads, Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. And finally, the fifth example from Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 19 says, and when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Now it's clear from these passages, and actually continues to be clear from the remainder of the book of Jeremiah, that God has come to the end of his patience with Judah and its opposition to him. For us, this is a clear warning that listening can be one of the hardest parts of our relationship with God. God's words are not meant to return to him in vain. 
Rather, they're meant to have an effect on our lives. James chapter 1, verse 22 says that we're called to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Likewise, Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So there is a purpose, a reason for God's words. They're meant to be heard, to be understood, to be applied, and to affect a change in the person's heart. So in this, Judah failed. So that's their first failure. The second failure, way in which they fell short, is that they presumed upon the Lord. Now at the start of chapter 21, Zedekiah watches as the mightiest army in the world gathers around the capital city of Jerusalem. He sends men to Jeremiah to inquire of God what's about to go down. And his phrasing is very striking here in the second verse, where he says, Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. Now, Zedekiah has had 20 chapters worth of warnings from God about that what's about to happen is about to happen. He's had 20 chapters of divine prophecy that this will happen because the sins of the nation that refuses, because of the sins of the nation that refuses to turn from them. So on one hand, Zedekiah has all these warnings from Jeremiah. And on the other hand, he has this dangerous situation materializing outside his city gate. Now God has already told him that the former is cause for the latter. But even so, he sends a delegation to Jeremiah to ask God for a reprieve. So can you consider maybe the intent of his heart in this statement? Maybe it sounds something like, Dear God, I am aware of all these bad choices that I and the nation have made in our lives. I also realize that despite your clear and unwavering reprimands, we keep making them. Now that we have to face the consequences of these actions, we're coming to you and asking for you to work mightily as you have in the past and make these consequences go away. Dear God, is it not part of your job to be gracious? Will you now do your job? You can hear the tone of arrogance in Zedekiah's words here. He's playing God like some kind of insurance policy, tucked away in a filing cabinet and generally ignored until it becomes valuable to claim him. This behavior is not reflective of hearts that have genuinely returned to the Lord. Rather, these are hearts that have returned in pretense only, as Jeremiah lays out in chapter 3, verse 10. So their second failure is presuming upon the Lord to act in a way that they would expect. Now, the third failure in this passage is rebelling against God over what they think is right. Jeremiah 21.1 gives us the names of two men who were sent to Jeremiah to inquire of the Lord. The first, Pasher, the son of Malchiah, is also mentioned in Jeremiah 38. Seventeen chapters later, Jerusalem is still under siege. The city officials come again to Jeremiah, hoping to get a different message from the prophet. But the message does not change. In fact, chapter 38, verse 2 is almost word for word the same as chapter 21, verse 9. So in response, the city officials, one of whom is Pasher, the son of Malchiah, says to the king, Jeremiah 38, 4, Let this man be put to death. For he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. This statement from the city officials is loaded with irony. 
Despite the officials' claims, Jeremiah is in fact seeking the welfare of the people. More importantly, Jeremiah's prophecy is God seeking the welfare of his people. It is God who has warned time again, time and again of this eventuality, and now it is God who is providing a means of escape for the people of Jerusalem. God makes this explicit in Jeremiah 21.9 when he makes the statement, He who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. Now, doesn't the phrase a prize of war sound very peculiar here? Why would God say such a thing when we all know that the prizes in war go to the winners, not the losers? Is God really saying to them, Leave all that you have behind, all your wealth, all your land, all your possessions, the temple where I dwell, the community that you know, and all that you are familiar with. Leave with only your life. And you will have won this battle? Is that what God is actually saying? I believe here that he is, and here's why. God's priorities are so far above ours that so often we look at the victories that God has put into our lives and we count them as losses. Here, God is making the situation plain. The sins of the nation have grown so great and the leadership so stubborn in its unwillingness to repent and turn to God that he must excise the people from their situation in order for them to heal properly. On the other hand, the city officials have their own agendas and preconceived notions about what they expect to happen from the siege and, more fatally, what they expect God to do. They have certain expectations of God, preconceived notions about he is going to treat them because they assume he couldn't possibly discipline his people like this. You can imagine what they might be wrestling with in their hearts as they hear these words coming from Jeremiah. As it says in, verse, in, in chapter 21, Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his deeds and will make them withdraw from us, only to hear God say, I myself will fight against you. They might question, but God, is this city not Jerusalem, the very capital of the nation you have called your own? Only to have God answer, I will strike down the inhabitants of this city. I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good. Then they might appeal, but God, are these people not your people, the offspring of Abraham, rescued by your servant Moses from Egypt by your mighty hand? only to have God reply, I will give Zedekiah and his servants and the people who survive into the hands of their enemies. Now, these are a people who could not grasp that the hardship they were facing was, in the long term, for their good. This is an incredibly difficult but necessary lesson that we all need to learn. In fact, I'm reminded of a much smaller but similar sto similarly sobering story from my own life. In October of 2008, Michelle and I had Tyler. We did all the typical first parent things. We doted on the newborn. We spoiled him rotten. He was the sole focus and center of our attention, of our collective attention. Now, four months later, in February of that very next year, Tyler contracted RSV, which for most people is just a particularly nasty cold. But for a newborn, it can be a life-threatening condition. The problem with RSV is that it causes the body to build up this very thick, heavy mucus in the lungs. And babies don't often have the strength in themselves to clear it. 
So we took him to the pediatrician who noted his blood oxygen levels were not where they should be, and he was admitted to the hospital. Now, the start of this hospital visit involved me, four-month new dad, having to pin my four-month-old newborn to the emergency room table so doctors could run an IV into his arm. Despite his screaming and protest, I used all my new dad's strength to freeze his arm in place so a perfect stranger could put a needle into it. Now, once the IV was in, they splinted the arm to keep, from, keep it from bending at the elbow. If any of you have ever seen a four-month-old with his arm sticking straight out and asking him to hold it there for a whole week, I don't know you. <laughs> Never seen it before myself. Now, his arm would remain that way for the next seven days. To make things worse, a couple times a day, every day, some nurses would come into the room with a long tube attached to a suction pump. Now, we would all pin Tyler down on this little bed, and despite his cries of protest, the nurse would take that tube and would insert it down into his nose and suction out all the garbage that had collected in his lungs that he could not clear for himself. During that week, the only thing that mattered to me in the world was his blood oxygen level. I knew that the RSV was inhibiting his body's ability to get oxygen, and every step we took in the hospital was aimed squarely at improving that number. The IV, the splint, the tube down his nose were excruciating for all involved. However, whereas Tyler had no idea what was happening to him as a four-month-old, the situation could not be more clear for Michelle and me. We simply had to do everything we could to help our son get better. Now, I cannot tell you how elated Michelle and I were to finally get a clean bill of health for Tyler at the end of that week. We were so eager to get out of the hospital, we refused to wait for the wheelchair to leave the premises, and nurses actually helped us smuggle him out through some side door of the hospital. Despite how terrible that ordeal was, if the same situation presented itself to us again, I would not change a thing about my behavior. How we chose to treat our son was necessary for his health. The story of Tyler's battle with RSV echoes God's perspective on the siege of Jerusalem. God saw the spiritual health and well-being of his people on decline. He saw injustice, idolatry, violence, and rebellion infecting the hearts of the people he wanted to call his own. And so the time had finally come when the nation had to get checked into a hospital, so to speak. All the pain, the heartache, and the lamentations the nation would endure were terrible for all parties involved. However, whereas we can only see our limited perspective on the matter, God has a much clearer and more correct assessment of what's at stake. And where it would take us a week to get checked out of the hospital, it would take 70 years before Judah's bill of health was clear enough that they could return to the land that God originally given to them. It is hard to understate the importance of this lesson. God's love for his people is not content with their spiritual stagnation, let alone backsliding. When God acts against his people, it is not sudden. It is not without warning. It does not lack concern, nor is it done offhand. God is not capricious. God is not cavalier. His intent for his people is their holiness above their happiness. We must be willing to submit to this discipline, full of faith that when it comes, it is for our benefit. Tragically, the kingdom of Judah refused to learn this lesson, and the consequences were dire. So what happens to Zedekiah, his officials, 
the city of Jerusalem, and the kingdom of Judah. Well, spoiler alert, unfortunately, the practical consequences of their opposing God's offer of life were catastrophic. Now, back then, I'm going to take a break, do a little bit of military history strategy here. If you want to besiege a city, the way you go about it is the attacking army surrounds that city completely and sets up fortifications against it. That way, nothing would be able to enter or leave that city without the attacking army's explicit approval. Then, they waited for however long it would take for the city to surrender. Now, while the attacking army is supplied and fortified from without, the city and its inhabitants slowly suffer and die from malnutrition and disease. And that's exactly what the Babylonians did. This siege of Jerusalem would last for the next two and a half years. During that time, the full force of God's wrath was laid upon the city. It is during this siege that the next book in the Bible, the book of Lamentations, was written. And in there are firsthand accounts of what the city's population went through. It is a difficult book to read. The circumstances were truly horrifying. To oppose God is to choose the way of death. This opposition comes with problems you do not want to have. Though man's way may seem attractive in the short term, the end result will be a losing battle wherein God continues to war against a rebellious heart that we try to grip tighter and tighter. So with the bad news out of the way, let's turn now to the second point that I'd like to make tonight. I want to talk about the way of life one that this passage alludes to, and one that the Bible talks about in much greater detail. So let's fast forward a bit, 600 years after the event of Jeremiah 21. On the eastern side of the same city, Jerusalem, lay a garden called Gethsemane. And in Mark chapter 14, the Bible portrays the scene where Jesus is praying by himself prior to his arrest. Mark chapter 14, verses 35 and 36. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now this is a pivotal scene in Jesus' earthly ministry, and there are a number of parallels that exist between Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14 and the second siege of Jerusalem in Jeremiah chapter 21. Unlike the story that unfolded there, however, in the garden we're given an example of how to walk according to the way of life. And I want to show you that even though it does come with its own troubles, they are still the better choice of the two. Now the first way we see Jesus compared to the siege of Jerusalem is that whereas Zedekiah his officials, and even the nation itself refused to listen to God's warnings and repent, Jesus spent his whole life listening to the Father. His upbringing was spent learning about God and growing in his grace. His earthly ministry was driven by prayer and a dependence upon the Father, and he obeyed perfectly everything that God had said to him. I pulled a couple verses from the New Testament that speak to this relationship that Jesus had with the Father and how it affected his behavior. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, 
and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John chapter 12, verse 50. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. John chapter 3, verse 32. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. John chapter 3, verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now what these passages are telling us is that Jesus didn't find himself in Gethsemane by accident. He knew his calling. He knew his mission. He knew what was in store for him. He knew all these things by listening to God. So that's the first way that Jesus fared better than Judah. Now, the second way in which Jesus' response in Gethsemane stands in contrast to Jeremiah 21 is in how he submits to the Father's will for him. As I said before, listening to God's words is meaningless without letting them into your heart and having them change your behavior. In this, too, Jesus was perfect, submitting to God's will for his life wherever that path would lead him. Again, the New Testament speaks to Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father repeatedly. John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 8, verse 28. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. John 14, verse 31. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So in contrast to presuming upon the Lord, Jesus sets his own will aside and lets himself be directed by God and nothing else. Any presumptions he might have had about what God should do or how he was meant to be treated, it's all immediately done away with. So that's the second way in which Jesus shows us shows us a better way than what Judah exemplified in Jeremiah 21. Now the third way that Jesus chose the way of life, a way in stark contrast to how Zedekiah and the nation of Judah responded to their predicament, was to put God's priorities above his own. Jesus knew full well what lay before him in Jerusalem, and in Gethsemane we hear him pray, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Mark 14.36 Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus alone was able to peer out over the horizon of the city and see siege works that were once again marching their way towards Jerusalem. This time, however, They were not being sent by an earthly kingdom, but by the kingdom of heaven. The one at the helm of the charge was no mortal king this time, but his own heavenly father. Knowing full well that all this was about to happen, how does Jesus finish his prayer? Yet not what I will, but what you will. In this, and to the very end, Jesus was perfectly submitted and obedient to God the Father. A handful of disciples at varying points in his ministry tried without success to persuade him otherwise, that there must be some other way to fulfill the will of God. 
Their arguments might have sounded familiar to the officials in Jeremiah's time as they disagreed over the welfare of the people. But Jesus' response over and over reveals a clear conviction of heart, echoed again in John 18.11 as his arrest is rebuffed by Peter. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So what is the end result of Jesus' example in life? What came of his active relationship with the Lord and his desire to follow him despite anyone else's expectations? As we well know, Jesus was betrayed, abandoned by his disciples, and sent alone to hang before the wrath of God. Jesus knew all about the second siege of Jerusalem. Jesus knew all about the book of Lamentations, and he knew all about the disaster that God wrought upon his people there. And yet, Jesus also knew full well that the story we started with, its tragedies and its outcome, they all pale in comparison to what he was about to face. Yet here is the key as to why Jesus kept marching forward. The siege that had come upon our Savior was not there to ransack a city, but to destroy sin. The spoils of this war were not gold or land or material treasure, but a people redeemed for himself. God sent his only son to the cross so that we could escape the wrath we deserved with our own lives. This is what the author of Hebrews was talking about when he wrote, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus didn't just model what it looked like to walk the way of life, though he did so perfectly. His walking out the way of life purchased for himself a nation of forgiven sinners. Jesus Christ purchased for us a new and living covenant with God. Jeremiah actually writes about this several chapters later in Jeremiah verse 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, where it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31 is fulfilled in every heart that the Holy Spirit has moved to repentance and faith. Brothers and sisters, you are the result of Jesus Christ's life, ministry, death, and resurrection. God had you in mind when he had Jeremiah pen chapter 31, verse 33. Walking out the way of life meant that Jesus' top priority was God's top priority, and that priority was glorifying himself through the redemption of a lost people by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now to the third part, the character of a surrendered heart. I want to reiterate a common thread that exists between the second siege of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 21 and Jesus praying in Gethsemane just prior to his arrest. There is something about both situations that link them, and it's important because I think that that link exists for us as well. There's a message that brings together 589 BC, 30 AD, and 2020. And that is this. God's way of life always meets your needs, though perhaps not your assumptions. In Jeremiah, the people were more aware of their priorities than God's, and they lost. In Gethsemane, Jesus was more aware of God's priorities than his own, 
and he won for us the single greatest prize of our existence. So what does that mean for us today? How do we incline ourselves to respond more like Jesus and less like Zedekiah? The truth is there are many, many ways to do this, but I only want to focus on three. The first one, fight the good fight, empowered by the Spirit. Paul, in 1 Timothy, lays out a number of challenges to us as he's wrapping up the epistle. The paragraph starts in verse 12, where he writes, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight. Our lives are a spiritual contest. The nation of Judah lost that fight. Jesus won that fight, and now we are called to emulate him. Now, there's one critical difference between Zedekiah's situation and ours. One critical thing that gives us an opportunity to win where they lost, and that is, namely, that we have the Holy Spirit to empower us in the fight. Again, we turn to Paul, who in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 lists out a number of gifts that God gives to believers. And in the end, he writes, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. It is no small thing to have the Holy Spirit on our side. We must confess our need of him constantly, and his ability to work in us deeply to accomplish what he wills for us in our lives. The second thing I want to focus on, a characteristic of a surrendered heart, is to be jealous about your relationship with God. Life moves pretty fast. It was true when Ferris Bueller said it in the 80s, and it's still true today. It's not hard for a schedule to fill up, for responsibilities to take over, and before long, you're caught up in a whirlwind of stuff that needs to get done. While the things that occupy our time are not necessarily bad, they unfortunately leave little room for God to work, both in you and through you. We must take time regularly to be seeking the Lord, to be putting ourselves before his throne, and to wait for and respond to his promptings. Going back to Jeremiah 21 for a minute, it was clear the nation wasn't listening to God. This did not happen overnight. Rather, it was the result of systemic choices they made in their lives to follow after things they thought were more important than God. Their relationship with the Lord wasn't severed in one fell swoop, but rather was a death by a thousand tiny decisions. We have to be sober and aware of the fact that we can lose touch with the Lord the same way. The good news is that victory is found in fighting small battles, a regular devotional life, a regular attendance at a local church, a regular habit of serving the community that God has placed you in. All of these things work towards keeping a relationship with God that is active and vibrant. The third thing that I want to say about a characteristic of a severed heart is be willing to sever the limb. This last one may sound a bit extreme, but I think in order for us to do Jeremiah 21 justice, it's a point that has to be made. There comes a time in our lives when something has just got to go. It doesn't have to be an outright sinful thing. It could be a thing that, for one reason or another, it could be a good thing that, for one reason or another, your heart just cannot handle faithfully. I trust we do not find ourselves in these situations often, but when they do happen, 
they can really have an effect on our quality of life, as well as our usefulness and witness for the Lord. In such cases, it's worthwhile reminding ourselves of the challenge that Jesus laid out in Mark chapter 9. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. Mark chapter 9, verse 47. To be sure, that is a hyperbolic example, but the message is clear. Jeremiah 21 was full of people with body parts causing them to sin, and they refused to get rid of them. We have to be willing to hear from God when a thing isn't worth it, even a good thing, and to be willing to do away with it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its joys, for its promises, and the peace it brings like nothing else can. We also thank you, Father, for the sobering stories like the ones that we read tonight. Thank you that we have examples of how not to live for you, but we also have great examples of how to live for you and your glory despite ourselves. Father, you are just in your desire to seek our holiness above our happiness. You are righteous in your desire that we should have an active, faith-filled relationship with you. As we go about the rest of our week, Lord, I ask that you would speak to us clearly about where areas, about areas where you seek to fulfill our needs and empower us to challenge our own expectations of you. We ask all these things, not because we are great, Lord, but because you are. In Jesus' name, amen.